Welcome back, Rebels. Welcome back. Apologies for no intro last week. We had a bit of a technical snafu. Thought it was better to put the episode out, so we did. But this week you have got an intro and I want to talk about something big, something really big. Talk about it. What is your big project? And and where, where this has come from, just to put it into context, is I have been listening to Dave Grohl's new book on Audible and he mentioned in there that he knew Kurt Cobain for three and a half years. And... That which just, is mental yeah i see because that it's like mind. yeah that's like how, how was that band only together for such a short period of time that made such a massive impact that like but also started his career in a massive way like he wouldn't be where he is now without that initial magic three years at the start that kind of became the foundation of everything that he is now Yeah, it's so true. I mean, uh, the album Bleach had already been made. So um, Nirvana was together, but just not with Dave Grohl um, before those those three and a half years. But but yeah, the body of work with Dave Grohl involved in is such a short amount of time. And and obviously Foo Fighters were a very different band. But um, I think that when it's it's like the example I always use on the show is Kellyanna. When you look at her work, you can see every element of where she's been on her journey that comes forward and, and creates her own yeah, unique yeah. style. And it would be the same with with Dave Grohl. And, and interestingly, he talks in the book about not wanting to be that guy from Nirvana, which I think he's done very well. He will always be that guy from Nirvana. Um, but yeah. the mad thing of that being only three and a half years long and this, this, I mean, if we think about how long we've known Dave Grohl for, we've known him as a Foo Fighter for... 15 16 yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it? however many years it's been since he wasn't yeah. in nirvana anymore so since i used to spend every afternoon watching kerrang and he'd come up every like 10 minutes exactly but that made me think like if if you can create something in three and a half years that just becomes this in, like i'm not saying everyone is going to like nirvana is a once in a generation band like i'm not saying you're going to create something that is going to last forever is going to become iconic and world famous but but you might like you could, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because they're just some dudes. I think this is another thing. I was I was listening to Flea's book as well from Red Hot Chili Peppers, and and I was thinking the other day, like you listen to these stories of these incredible rock stars that we put on this massive pedestal, like hugely famous people, and when they're telling their childhood bit, they've got these whole like stories about oh, and then like I I lost a tooth because I fell down the stairs, all of these things, and they they weave together and they're nice stories. But when you look at it, you're just like, well, there's a bunch of things that happened to me when I was a kid that I could put all of these fluffy words around, that I could make it sound exactly the same. There's nothing like, yeah, we grew up not with much. Like we had a heart, like my my mum was like working really hard to bring us home a meal. Every, like these are stories that are very relatable to me. I'm sure they're very relatable yeah, to yeah, most yeah. people listening to this podcast. So it's like, there's nothing we put these people on pedestals but then when you realize like okay they they we we all probably started off in a fairly similar way um and then what happens is at some point they get really obsessed with something and then so they put loads of time to into it and then they can start telling the stories that are less relatable because they're about when i was on stage with paul mccartney and he's my hero yeah, and all of yeah, this yeah. sort of shit that happens to people and and i i find it so interesting that that these are remarkable people but when you look at their stories, their stories are not remarkable up to a certain point. And then they start on a project and the project is what makes them remarkable. So as we're getting towards the end of the year here, 
I'm wanting any Rebels listeners to start thinking about like, what is that big project that you're going to do next year? What is that thing that you're going to do that not anyone else is doing? Because I think it's so easy to get into the mundanity of just producing the work or or getting into the the trap of like feeding the algorithm and like, oh, I've got to do a post and whatever, whatever. What is one thing that you could do next year that's going to take a significant amount of like your spare time that you're going to be like, working on that is something different that could get attention on you that could send you in an interesting direction that could evolve your career i think this is something so important i think not enough people do i think most people just get in the grind they do the piece the piece the piece just to kind of feed the algorithm to just kind of like even just to feel like you've done something to just be like cool there's another thing done there's another thing done but i think what we need to do and it's the difference between an average creator and someone who's iconic is creating those works that are just so standout, so like, oh my God, this is absolutely insane. It almost defines the artist. When you look back, you're like, this will be one of the creations that that artist will be remembered for. And I think that's what we need to try and do. Even if we just do one a year for our whole life, like that is a, we'll have a really good body of work by the time we like finally die. But like, that's what we need to focus on. It's like, how can we do something that's bigger, like better than anything we've ever done before? And I think by doing that as well, that's where our career takes it to the next step. That's when it's like, okay, these are the average things you do. That's fine. It's good. But by stepping up and going to show people what you could do if you put way more effort into it, that's how things really start to evolve. Like when we talked to Christian Breslauer recently, he was telling us about how when he was first starting doing music videos, he was doing kind of just things for free for someone he knew and it was kind of fine. And then all of a sudden the guy who was shooting with bought him a camera and he could suddenly do more with it and he could like take to the next level and then suddenly he basically pushed that as far as he could to get to the next level and then suddenly now he's working with like 15 million dollar budgets and it's just pushing that barrier and i think what we need to do is take it upon ourselves is to push ourselves to that next level like what would it look like what would our work look like if we could spend a month on it how big how amazing could we possibly make that and i think this is something that we should have as that goal for next year is like let's try and create one piece that is just another level compared to everything else we've done before that's got a bigger richer story which kind of has got more people involved in it it's like it's just this kind of like huge concept that we have in our head that could potentially become something amazing because i think that's the difference between kind of your average performer compared to the dave grohl is it's like he's been like okay well we've got this team of people we're going to create this album that is going to be amazing and we're going to put all of our work into it i think yes yeah, so it's a difference between as a creative are we going to make a single or are we going to make a, an album are we going to make a body of work that all works together it's just so stand out that's going to stand the test of time so what can we do in 2022 to be able to just push the bar just to that absolute next level yeah i i think people are afraid to to dream that big or or they're so immersed in what they're doing that they are not able to actually see what they could do that that would go further. Um, I was giving a talk a couple of months ago to uh, to this young group, and and some of them came up afterwards and were like, "Oh, we're we're doing a podcast. Um, have you got any ideas?" And they were interning at a very large ad agency, which is where I was giving the talk. And I was like, "Well, you're working in this ad agency." like what can you get out of them like how can you use them as a res- as a resource 
I was like, they've told you, you have to do this podcast. Well, why don't you go back to them and say, yes, we will do this podcast. But for this, I, I want you guys to help us get this guest because I know you've got pull and you've got more pull than a bunch of 20 year old kids are doing an internship. Yeah. And like their eyes are going wider because they couldn't think past the fact they've been asked to do a podcast. So they yeah. thought that meant we're going to sit down with mics and we're going to record something. I was like, you've got access to billboards potentially. This company represents a very large sports brand who has a reach that that goes out to athletes. And like, I was yeah, like, you could, yeah. you could get a list celebrities on your podcast potentially. Like, if you if you think bigger than just sitting around yeah, and interviewing yeah. each other, and and so many people are just stuck with the barriers that are on themselves. And I think when you think of this week's guest, Sophie Gamon, when you think of her work, there, there's there's a lot of people who do take photos of pets that have this ceiling of they're going to be able to sell their work in in these few niche places. They're going to work for a few owners of dogs and that's it. Sophie's, Sophie says, like, I am an artist and I use dogs to, to say about the world what I want to say about and to explore my own feelings. And she creates these images that we always talk about shareable content. She creates these beautifully shareable images of these cute dogs that like ev- like everyone is going to want a poster of it and t- and so she's gone so much further because she's got so much of a bigger vision and i think the bigger the vision the more that you can create and so hopefully by giving the listeners the the task of like what's one project that you can work on because like if we talk about projects that that change things like nirvana being a project that changed things sophie's project wet dog she was completely unknown and then she just she just took some photos of some wet dogs, but then just like that completely took off, changed her career. That's the, that's the pivotal turning point in her career where she all of a sudden becomes famous, well-known viral. Um, and she jumps on that momentum and she rides it. So what's one thing that someone could do that, that potentially could change things. And if it doesn't, then it's a learning curve. It's a learning experience because you were talking about, um, your, your piece of work or your best piece of work and the work that you spend the most time on. And what always fascinates me about portfolios, because it, it's happened with mine for so many years, is the best piece in your portfolio right now will not be the best piece in your portfolio in 10 years time or five years 100%. time or probably even two years time. That always blows my mind because the best piece in my portfolio currently is the absolute peak of my ability. I can't do any better than that. I might be able to see it in my head, but I can't physically get it to be any better than that top piece. But what happens is as you keep going, all of a sudden, the, the best piece in your portfolio in five years time probably won't even be in your portfolio. Like that's actually a really beautiful and inspiring thing. Although you love that work now, just think like you'll be so much better in five years time that it won't even be included in your portfolio. Like that's nuts. Yeah, I think you can even think about that as like the work you've done so far and like looking back at what would have been your best piece of work two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, like depending on how long you've been creating for. And it's like, it's so nice to be able to look back and see, okay, well, if I've come this far, like you've not peaked, like you can keep creating, you can keep getting better. So it's just like, if you can see where you started compared to where you are now, you can do that again, but in the opposite direction. And I think you can do that. Like when we talk about when it comes to like pricing your work and like how to get more for what you do. And one thing I always like to say is like, well, think about the service or whatever you do now, what would that look like if it was times by 10? So say if you currently charge a thousand pounds for this canvas, what would that canvas look like if it was 10,000 and do that, just do one of them. Because then it's like, if that, if you do it and it works, 
then suddenly you're you've literally times your income by 10 by the ability to do paintings that are so much bigger better and maybe actually something that is more rewarding because you know you feel like you're not kind of churning them out it's like you actually get to spend time in it think about it which i think as creatives especially in kind of a commercial world time is something that i feel like is just like gets away with us it kind of we've got deadlines we need to get things out really quick but if we can set ourselves up so we don't have to have that if we can have bigger briefs that last longer that are less stressed because it's not just turn churn 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 i think as creatives we'll get so much more reward from that so yeah so what can you do this year that's 10 times better than what you're currently doing like if you currently create paintings what kind of painting can you do that's 10 times better than what you currently do like what can you sell for for 10 times more if you've got a service if you create um products what kind of product can you make that's 10 times better than what you do now oh you've you've got me all inspired now i want to go and i want to go and make something um i i think i think what i want listeners to do as well is is don't be don't be scared by this because i mean we're always asking you to work hard and i don't i don't want anyone to see this as oh shit well here's another bloody task i've got to do like this should be fun and i think when you set yourself these big projects they are they're always going to be uncertain because they're going to be something that you've not done before and i think that's quite a fun like don't place too much expectations on it like what we're saying is this could be your nirvana moment this could be the one project that only lasts for a short amount of time but becomes becomes long-standing and throughout your career you're always known for it like i do really think that doing my um, scavenger hunt last year i think i'll always be remembered for that and i think people had so many fond feelings around going on that hunt and obviously i will do more um, but that being the first one it, it it was special but again that was something that i didn't know if it would succeed it's like when you when you look at Sophie, she didn't know Wet Dog was going to be a successful project. She didn't know that Pitbull Flower Power was going to be a successful project. They just, she just had a go. And and if she did the first five Pitbulls and it wasn't a success and she got like kind of no feedback or it was just crickets on social media, like she would have just moved on and come up with a different idea. Yeah, but it turns yeah. out that, that Pitbull Flower Power ended up running from 2016 to 2020. Like it's a four-year project that just started off as something that could have been just a four-week project or a one-week project. So whatever it is that you decide to go into, don't go into it with a sense of dread or like it's homework. Like this is a chance to experiment, to fuck around, to play with something. If you've always had that that nagging idea in the back of your head, or oh, I wonder what would happen if I did this thing, because that's what mine was with the street art hunt. I've always been interested in like putting stickers in the street and doing this thing. But like, what if I did that on a grand scale? What if I put that on steroids, times it by 10 and, and went big with it? And and it turned out to be one of the best things I've ever done. So yeah, I think that the going big is the thing, isn't it? It's like you could have done 50 pieces around London, but you went for a thousand. Like that's like a pick something that seems ridiculous and just do it. I think that's the key. It's like, what do you suddenly think is, what do you currently think is crazy? What do you currently think is, oh, I couldn't do that. But like you, you looking back at yourself in five years time is going to be like, oh, well, that, that was so simple. Like I'm probably did that. That was like, it wasn't too hard. And we don't realize like what we can achieve. And we will only realize that by actually going to do it. I think so much of what we have creatively is from our own self-belief and from our own confidence. And we only build that by pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone, doing things that seem crazy, seem ridiculous but that's how we learn and that's how we grow. 
Yeah, 100%. So we've we've mentioned her a couple of times in this intro. Sophie Gamon is this week's guest and uh, what an incredible story. I think she she is thriving as a creative, which is the position that we want everyone to get to. Um, she's she's creating work that she cares about, that resonates with people. And because it resonates with so many people, like to a niche of people, is very specific. Mm. Like it's it's um, she's narrowed down and she's found her people, she's found her tribe. But that's all she needs to to have a really really successful career. And I just I, I love talking to Sophie because I feel like she's she's so relatable. Um, the things that she talks about, you could see yourself in the early stages of your journey. You can you can relate to where Sophie's come from. Yeah, hundred percent. I think this is such an interesting episode, and like Sophie is such a wonderful, wonderful person. Like we could have easily talked for like four hours, and like it, um, when I say easily, that's very easy. Um, but yeah, I think she is someone who is like a role model for any creatives listening to this. It's like she is in the position that I think so many people would love to be in, where they're doing what they want. They've got their own idea, their own vision. They've got a good following behind them. And when she creates stuff, it sells. And she's just living a creative life that I feel like is so inspirational. And I really hope you get a lot from this episode. Run the tape. Hi, Sophie. Hi. So you are obviously known for the photos of the, that you take of dogs. When was the first time that you sort of discovered photography? My father had an ad agency in the 70s, 80s. And I guess he had like big cameras sometimes around the house. He had gotten one for my mom that she never touched. So I, I probably saw the equipment. And I just remember that when I was about 10, I saved, you know, my pocket money. And then I got myself a little, um, how do they call this Kodak the thin ones that are super like bright colors. This is going to date me. But so anyway, I saved my pocket money and I got myself that camera and, uh, and that started my journey. But then I stopped for a very long time until I was in my late twenties and I discovered digital uh, cameras and I was like, what is this? You know, and Photoshop. And then I started using photography more as a mean of expression and creating um, montages and a lot of self-portrait and super artsy stuff. Uh, so I don't know that I see myself as a photographer, more like an artist that uses photography mm. as one of her mediums. I think a lot of people struggle with sort of finding their passion or finding their meaning on this planet and what they're supposed to be doing with their life. And quite often I say to people, go back and look at what you did, what you enjoyed as a child. And it's it's so often, to, there's so many stories where that thing that you liked when you were a kid can become your career and is your, is your thing when you're older. Yeah, I, I say the exact same thing, actually. I think we're very like-minded. Um, I, I always say, yeah, when people struggle, just, just find that, that, what were you obsessed with when you were a kid? Uh, and for me, it was animals. They felt like a safe place. And photography and the arts, I, I knew I was an artist. I just, it took me a lifetime to get back to where I am today, just because of society, pressure, daddy, you know, just, although he was a kind of a creative mind. He encouraged me to study law and, and have like a more traditional career. Um, mm. So I had to fight really, you know, through a long winded road to come back to who I really was from the beginning. So I think as, as kids, we like instinctively know where we belong. And my husband too, you know, he loved computers and he, he got a computer when he was a kid and he programmed his only little game on it because there was nothing on the computer. And, and now he's a VR programmer, you know? And so I think we just, we, hopefully find a way back to our childhood love. But if ever anybody's struggling, yes, that would be my number one tip. Like what, what made you feel excited 
What filled you yeah. with wonder when you were a, a kid? When you said a safe space, is that like you can cut out everything else that's going on in the world and you just like zero down on photography? Yeah, I talked about photography and animals as my safe space just because mm. I feel like I grew up in a very chaotic environment where I didn't feel loved or supported or seen and uh, also really misunderstood. Like your words could be used against you and it was so complicated to communicate with humans. With animals, it felt you know, if the animal doesn't like you, it's pretty clear. If the, you know, um, I was attacked by a dog too when I was a kid and it was a pretty violent attack. And I guess, I don't know, I just feel even, even in that moment of violence with that animal, I understood the rule. I understood that he was defending something. There was, I don't know, even in the violence with animals, I feel like the, if you listen, if you really listen to the animal, the, the communication is much easier than with humans. So, and photography, also a safe place because it allowed me to create intimacy at a distance. I liked standing away from people and kind of stealing portraits of them, like especially my family. So I would, one of the cameras that my dad had laying around was, had a really long lens. And it was one of those lenses that you have to use with a tripod. I mean, it was like one of those really big, heavy thing. And I was like just a kid. And I remember just putting a black and white film and then just, taking portraits and I would have to stand so far away from my siblings and my parents and I would just kind of steal these portraits and they would be close-ups yeah. and like blurry a little bit because I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and for me, it was like about trying to understand. And a lot of these photos, when I look at them now, you know, there's like absent eyes and it's just something that I think everybody was very lonely in my family. There was, it was, there was not a, a support system for each other. Everybody was struggling with their own stuff. It's interesting. So I feel like a long lens on a camera it kind of gets that realness it's because it's like i feel like as soon as someone comes up to you and you you're consciously on film you behave in a different way to how you act when you're just like separate yeah like i was shooting um i went to one of my friend's weddings recently and they asked me to kind of do a wedding video for them and i took like a really long lens with me so i could purposely not have to go up to people and i could literally just like i felt like a sniper kind of like across the kind of courtyard kind of like zooming right into people but you'd get really natural candid photos that if I went up to them and said like oh can I take a picture you'd then get cheesy smiles and kind of it wouldn't be authentic yeah. to who they necessarily are um yeah. but yeah I feel like that's what is magical about kind of a longer lens especially with street photography as well is like if you go out you don't have to especially if you feel like nervous going up to people it's a great way to be able to still create stuff with people involved but they don't have to necessarily acknowledge that you're there yeah and they're not like actors of the scene they're just being themselves and it's probably what attracts me to photographing animals and dogs in particular even though with you know the the work that i do i'm always just a few uh centimeters you know from from the dog and i used shorter lenses and wider angles sometimes and so it's a different i have to be really close but they're just being themselves and that's what i really mm. love about it is you just really never know what's going to happen on set um, you can plan as much as you want, but ultimately it's going to be about the comfort level of, of the dog and what they're able to take and, and how they take to you as well. Like, are they going to like me or not? And so I really love that, like just setting up my stuff and then have a dog come in and I'm like, oh, well, how do we, how do we create this dance between us? Who's going to lead? Who, what's going to happen? Like, it's super exciting. Yeah, because I'm a portrait photographer with humans and I have that same kind of like thing as like, as soon as someone comes in there's the which way is this going to go kind of how's this interaction going to go but then like mm. the longer the shoot goes on when it gets more comfortable then it's like you really see the actual person come out of it and I always kind of recommend to people 
like whatever you bring like we'll shoot your most boring look first that you don't really care about even what you walked in the door with because then it suddenly like breaks that down and like as soon as the comfort and that like the real them comes out of it you just get such a better experience and people leave feeling like oh I was myself there I didn't have to pretend to be someone else yeah that's really cool actually before I, I went down the rabbit hole of dog photography I did a little bit of human portraits I kind of miss it i it was it was tricky and it was mostly like intimate session with women. Um, it was a little bit like sometimes, you know, they just didn't know how to be photographed or how to photograph yeah. themselves. And it was before the selfie trend. So people still had to rely on a third eye, on a third party eye. And um, it was, I love doing that. Just like bringing the beauty out of, of these women, you know, um, and uh, yeah, that's something I would love to go back to one day, but I, I'm so caught up with the dog stuff. <laughs> but I really admire people that work with humans. So you, you mentioned earlier that you your family was kind of pushing you towards doing law and you did you, you studied, didn't you? Um, what, at what point did you realise that this kind of traditional career <laughs> was not for you? Uh, you know, I think I struggled a, a lot of my life. I struggled with the good girl syndrome of just like, not making waves and trying to comply mm. and trying to make people, everybody happy around you and all that. I think that's something a lot of us have. Uh, and for me, I was seeking a lot of um, validation, especially from my father, who was such a difficult man to, you know, to get attention from. So I, I was a good girl. I studied law and I did well. I mean, I was good at school. I'm the only one of all my siblings that actually finished high school and went into university. Um, and I was just, cause it was easier for me to just do what people told me, I guess, back then. So I actually have a master's in, in law. What saved me maybe, I mean, I, I don't know if, I think I enjoyed it cause I really loved the idea of advocacy back then. So I always think about the center point of my entire career, I think has been the voice. So the idea of being a lawyer was about fighting for causes. I, I wanted to become a diplomat at first or like work on the mm. international scene and change the world. That was like a big driving force for me. And then I also uh, studied opera singing, which was also about defending an emotion, a character and, and using your voice in mm. a very uh, literal way. Uh, and I feel like today I'm an animal advocate. I'm an advocate with my photography and it's, it's all about the voice, right? So I probably quickly knew it wasn't really for me, the whole law thing, but I, I kind of kept with it. And the last year I was able actually to specialize in art law because uh, the university where I studied in France um, actually opened up a new branch. And uh, it was basically a year of, uh, you know, gallerists and uh, auction houses and just learning all the art and taxation of the, the art market, the law and taxation of art market. And I wrote my mini thesis about stolen artworks during Second World, Second World War. So oh, it was right, about, yeah. yeah, so Russia, you know, when they did their, their retreats, they basically took everything that was in museums and stuff yeah. on their way. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, we lost a lot of invaluable pieces like Egyptian rolls and because they would store them in, in salt mines or they would burn them because it was so cold. And, you know, they're like, yeah, let's just burn a couple of paintings and keep warm. And, <laughs> And then in the 90s, in St. Petersburg, I think, they had like this big exhibit and it was called something like saved art. You know, I, I forgot the exact word, but it was about, hey, look at all this beautiful art we saved from the war. And people were like, um, actually, <laughs> these were not exactly saved. They were more like stolen. And there was a yeah. huge conversation around 
like, what is the legal status of this? Because back then you could take stuff as compensation for war damage. There were some treaties about that. And so anyway, I wrote a thesis about that and it was, it was super cool, but um, it was kind of under outside of law a little bit. It was more about history and it was mm. more about, I don't know. So yeah. And then I got a proper job and for a few years and I was miserable, you know, a nine to six kind of job. Um, I was able to save a lot of money, which helped me transition into my art career later, but, yeah. uh, it was for the four longest years of my life. And I just don't understand the whole nine to six concept. I don't understand why people are stuck behind a desk for no reason. Sometimes after two hours I was done and I would have to just push paper around for the next, the rest of the day, yeah. because that's what you're supposed to do. And it makes no sense. Absolutely no sense. So what did that transition look like going from working that kind of like nine to six into doing what you're doing now? Was it kind of like a, uh, I've just had enough of this, start the next thing, or was it a transition? I think while I was doing that job, because I mean, I was suffocating in that job. Um, and I was actually working for a program that was compensating victims of the Second World War. Oh, everything was like, so it was so much paperwork and nothing made really sense. I thought I was there for a great mission, but in the end, it was a lot of administrative bullshit. So on the side, mm. I started singing opera and taking classes and I wanted to record an album. So I was writing with a composer and I was spending a lot of my free time just working on like the next dream or the next venture. And also a lot of, you know, at my desk time researching, I don't know, like uh, maybe radio stations or how to write an album or just like random stuff. And I think um, all of that, it kind of plants seeds in you. And then when the iron is ready to be struck, like then you already have done some of the groundwork. So I basically, I think I was kind of looking for an escape, but I stuck with that job as long as I could because the money was really good and I had no idea what else to do. And then um, a couple of years into, I, I started a, a photo magazine. So I was actually, I created and um, directed a photo magazine in France for, I think, five years. Um, and it was a quarterly publication that was dedicated to contemporary photography. So I would interview a bunch of photographers from all over the world, from complete amateur to like really big names. Everybody was on the same page as far as I was concerned. And it was about discovering new talent and just understanding it from fashion to landscape. Like it was so amazing. And the magazine was beautiful too. Um, and interviewing all these artists, I could hear that everybody had kind of the same story of self-doubt and wondering what's next and even the big names. And it was it was so inspiring. And after a few years of that, I was like, maybe I could do that. And so I kind of transitioned. And that coincided with when I moved to New York from Europe. So I was on the clean slate anyway, like no job, no, no idea what to do next. So I folded my magazine and then I just decided, you know, I have a camera. I'm just going to try. Without the magazine, do you think that you end up where you are today? Yeah, I think it demystified something mm. for me, for sure. But the real thing that really kicked me was to meet William Wegman in New York. So I was in dog rescue at that point and I rescued the Weimar Reiner in Puerto Rico. And I, I knew uh, William Wegman. He's the photographer that's been photographing his Weimar Reiner's dogs for since the 70s, I think. A very iconic imagery. It's always the same dog, same breed, you know. And, um, and I, I knew his work because of the magazine. 
uh, but I had never talked to him before. And when I rescued that dog, I actually emailed the guy and I said, hey, William, you know, I just rescued this dog and I named him after you. I've been a big fan of your work. And he was like, he emailed back and he said, hey, come have tea, you know, let's chat. And I was like, what? Oh, my gosh. And so I, I went to meet him in person in his apartment, which is also his studio. I mean, he's it's more than an apartment. Uh, but it was amazing. Um, his dogs were very, very fucking scary. They were really big dogs. And the first thing he told me in the hallway was like, oh, quick, quick question. Are you afraid of dogs? <laughs> I'm like, what? I mean, no, but yes. I mean, it depends. What? And his dogs were like the size of ponies. And they hated having strangers come into the house. So they were like barking and poking me. And it was super scary because, as I mentioned, I was attacked by a dog once. So I'm like yeah. a little nervous around big dogs. Um, but the conversation I had with him um, was so freeing because I was sitting with that guy and we had a beautiful conversation. I was very nervous. I mean, I'm sure I was probably super lame. But by the time I got out, I all I could think about is like, wow, if this guy can do it, I can do it too. Because he was so normal and full of <laughs> doubt. And he had like a painting studio in the back. And I'm talking to this world-renowned photographer. And all he wants to do is paint. And he's telling me about, trying, you know, like getting a gallery show for his paintings. And he shows me his paintings. And I'm like, oh, I don't know that I like those paintings. But <laughs> the guy wants to be a painter. And, and I realized, wow, here he is. He's at the top of the game. And all he wants to do is, is dream to be a painter. And, you know, I, I don't know why. It kind of, um, it made me feel like, wow, if, if he can do it, then I can do it too. And I just committed to, like, taking the photos that I've been wanting to take. I told myself, give yourself two weeks to change the game. Commit 110% to photography and the ideas that you have. For two weeks, just photograph them and see what happens. Uh, I was also super broke at that point. I had no money left because I had been volunteering for a couple of years and depleted my savings. Like I was, I had less than $100 in my name at that point probably. And it was scary. I, I didn't know what to do. And so for those two weeks, I took photos and that's when I photographed my series called Wet Dog in like one afternoon at a groomer's salon. And that's the, actually the series that got me my career. Um, yeah. It went viral. I won a award. I got a book deal. And suddenly I had a lot of money on my bank account. But just like committing and really throwing myself into these two weeks and be like, you know what? You've never actually tried. You know, you dabbled. But like, what if, what would happen if you actually like really sit with it and try it and give it your best shot and go, 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 go. And don't doubt, don't. So that, I think that encounter with William Wegman, like kind of put the fire up my ass a little bit and, and wet dog opened that whole career for me and really changed my life. I think there's like two interesting points to take from that. I feel like firstly, like talking to William, it's like, if you listening to this, have anyone that is a bit of a role model to you that you see as like this really high level person, just reach out to them because there is the chance that they will listen. And like, then the second part is like how like leveling that is of like realizing that the people you put on the pedestal aren't that far away from where you are, like mentally. Like, you think that it's such a huge leap to get to that stage. But actually, as soon as you have a conversation with someone, like we do it every single week, like with some of the most interesting people in the world, and you realize everyone is just a normal person, just like you. And they're only a little bit further on in their journey. But in terms of mindset, quite often people are in a very similar place. Like the amount of times we'll speak to people on the show and they'll start to like ask us questions or say they're uncertain about things. They've got doubts in themselves. And it sounds like when you were talking and interviewing all these different photographers, you realize that actually all of these people aren't 
100% got it all together. They don't know what they're doing yet. They're still just on this journey the same as you are. We're all big babies. 100%. (laughs) You know, just walking around like, oh my God, what's happening? What am I doing? All of us. You actually break our our three year rule there with the uh, with the with the two week. Um, I think that's that's <laughs> so amazing that the wet dog came out of um, out of just a two week commitment because we normally say to people on this show like put in three years and then you'll start to see the results. But super lucky well, that actually, that worked. It was three created. years. Yeah, but you know what? In that count, it was actually three years leading to that point. From the moment I realized, yeah. hey, I want to take photos of dogs, to the moment that wet dog came out, it was three years. There you go. It's the magic number. Yeah, my father always said five years to make a business viable. But I heard on on one of your podcast episodes the three years. And it's true for me. I have five year cycles usually in life. I, I did mm-hmm. law for five years. I, I worked, you know, like all my little projects have been more or less five years, except Pitbull Flower Power, which has been going on forever, it seems. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it was actually three, three years from the moment where I realized, hey, I keep pointing my lens towards dogs. What if I kind of leaned into that, stick to that three years rule? I think it's really good. But sometimes, you know, it's like that overnight success that people are talking about. Yeah. It, so it's yeah. three years in the making. And then yet it's an overnight success with wet dog because I had no idea. I'm like, I just sent the photos to a blog, like thinking, oh, I guess I should put this in the world. And then it just took off like insane. And I was just not really prepared for that. I did not even have a website or an Instagram or Facebook in my name. I, I was just nothing. And suddenly I'm viral and I'm getting like publishers knocking on my door and everybody wants a piece of me. And it was nuts. So it was kind of overnight, but also three years in the making and a lifetime in the making. And how did you deal with that kind of like hit of virality? Because obviously it came as a shock. What was your response to that of being like, okay, how can I get all my eggs in order? I decided first, one of my rules was to say yes to everything, unless something felt really icky, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Also my law degree, I guess, my law background allowed me to kind of read. I read all my contracts. I'm, I'm like a pain in the ass because most... Most partners will send you a contract that's always on their side, a hundred percent benefit yeah. for them. They never think about you and what you know to protect you in the contract. It's one sided thing. So they also don't expect that you would have studied art law. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so here I am, like rolling up my sleeves, and I always send the contract back with like you know a bunch of annotations, and I say, okay, this paragraph has to go. This has to be changed, and I always push back. I always ask for way more money than than what they offer. I always ask for a bigger percentage. I always push the envelopes because I'm like. I don't really care. I'm broke. I have nothing to lose. I was, you know, yeah. like, I, I don't care. Um, and I've found over the years, actually, that whenever you ask for more money, you always get more money. Like people will <laughs> always offer you less. People will always try to, yeah, to get the, the most out of you for the, the, yeah. the less, you know, lesser investment. Um, actually, when I draft contracts with other people, I always include them and I always try to find a balance and make sure they're protected. It has bitten me in the ass before because then in the end I'm like oh I wish I hadn't given them all this because now they're being assholes <laughs> and I wish I could you know so yeah. so I get what people do it but yeah think about it sucks if you hate I hate doing paperwork and contracts I just never found a lawyer I'm, I'm terrible I, I don't have an assistant I do everything myself it's something I need to change uh, but I hate doing it but each time I force myself to do it because the amount of shit that people hide in their contract is I mean, nuts, nuts. Is there, is there anything that you kind of notice comes up a lot in contracts that would be good for our listeners to kind of look out for? 
as like easy little traps? Um, so, you know, especially in photography, it's a lot of, oh, we want the rights forever and to do everything we, can, we want with all our partners too. And I'm always like, okay, what does that actually mean? Who are your partners? Uh, how long? And so if you want that kind of usage, then you have to pay accordingly. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's tricky. It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a complicated dance. So I try to limit usage as much as I can and get the most money out of, out of that usage. But I've also had companies that agreed and then they send me the revised contracts and they said, just sign, everything is good. And I reread the contract and they've included more rights in there. And I actually called a company out for that. And I said, um, this is not what we agreed. And they were like, well, for the money we're going to pay you, we, we thought we should get this and this as well. And I was shocked. And I agreed to it because in the end, it didn't make a big difference to me. Mm. But I think read your contract, make sure usage is as limited as possible. Make sure you know who, who are the partners, who, because it could be that this company sounds like nothing, but then they have a partnership with Target. And before you know it, you know, your photos might be sold yeah. in Target. Like you just never know what these companies, what kind of dealings they have. So make sure, yeah, you limit the scope as much as possible. That would be my, probably my number one. And if they offer 10,000, ask for 20. And if they say, oh, no, we can't do 20, he said, well, could you meet me at 18? And they'll meet you at 15. Yeah, and you would yeah. have squeezed five more thousand out of them. I mean, that sounds really negative, but it's about finding, I don't know. And don't, don't, don't sign your rights away. Don't like, keep your photos. Um, I have photos that have been making me a little bit of money every year for years. And I'm like, I don't even know how people find these photos because I don't even know if they're on my website it's funny to me how it's always seemed to be the same images that generate money, revenues, uh, yeah. like in licensing and things like this. So never underestimate any image you've taken as long as you're, you know, proud or okay to put them out in the world. But I'm always surprised to see what, what images of mine actually resonate the most with ad agencies or like every audience has a different uh, style or a different thing they're looking for. So that would be another advice. And when it comes to kind of that commercial side of the photographs, how much does that impact when you're going to create new work of how much is this is going to be, I know this is going to work for commercial or compared to my own art view of like which way I want to take it? Zero, 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 zero. First, I'm in an industry, the dog industry, I guess, because I take photos of dogs. Um, and the dog is intru- industry is all about purebred. And I have zero interest. Well, I don't have zero interest, but I'm a mutt, you know, lover and I'm a rescue yeah. advocate. Uh, and if you look at, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not going to go into that conversation because we don't have time for this today and it's not the subject. But if you look at dog brands and, and um, ads that use dogs, it's always Frenchies, bulldogs, pugs. Yeah, yeah. These are the most unethical breeds you can possibly buy. Because they can't even birth naturally. They can't breathe. They have so many health issues. It's disgusting. So I don't feel aligned necessarily. So I honestly, zero, never, ever think about the commercial um, uh, potential, I guess, of my images. Um, When I I started my Pitbull project, Pitbull Flower Power, which is the one I'm most known for, I did think about the controversy a little bit, like thinking, okay, you know, if I create a project that has a little controversy to it or something, and it's actually another really big advice that I don't know if you guys have discussed uh, in previous episodes, but when you create a project, think about what can be discussed around your project. 
because you want to make it easy for journalists to want to talk about your work. If it's just mm -hmm. a series of portraits or whatever that doesn't really have a, a story, it doesn't really have a controversy or, or something that's going to shake the world or bring new thoughts or challenge the status quo, then what are people going to want to share your images and talk about them? So I think with my Pitbull project, I anticipated that it would be like, there's a lot of pe people out there that love or hate Pitbull. So I figured, you know, that people will be interested in these images. I did not anticipate it would be that much. <laughs> it mm -hmm. went, if I thought Wet Dog went viral, I was not prepared for Pitbull Flower Power because it was even crazier. Um, but yeah, so I think create work that engages and where people will want to ask questions and, and write about it. Um, but to think about commercial, I mean, I could. Every year I tell myself, why don't I just spend one month to photograph dogs that I know I can sell for licensing ads and all that and just make, yeah, a month of the year that's dedicated to just building a portfolio that's going to be commercial. I just, I don't have time for it. I mean, that's not where, <laughs> you know, you either, what's your driving force? Is it money? Is it uh, sustaini sustainability in the term of money or in the term of energy or in the term of I don't know. For me, it's it's creating engaging content. It's changing perception of things and challenging new thoughts and and advocating and letting people know don't buy Frenchies. They're fucked up. It's wrong. And you know yeah. that's where I want to put my energy and my art into. I think there's a balance, isn't there? Because you 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 mentioned that you were kind of volunteering up until the point where you literally had no money left. So it's like that's that's the breaking point that pushes you into okay, I'm going to have to dedicate some time to this and see if I can well I should probably rephrase because uh what I meant is that I was a full-time volunteer and so I was taking photos for rescues and nothing else um but since wet dog I've actually been able to make a living off my volunteer work so yes. all the photos that you see I go to shelters I take photos of shelter dogs and then these are the images that I sell and so I basically donate my time and my photography to animal shelters. They get to use them to promote the adoption. And um, I post them on my social media to help the dogs get adopted. And then I sell these images, whether it's fine art prints or licensing or all that stuff. So I actually managed to create this weird hybrid. So it's like the volunteering's funded by your creativity. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know which one comes first, the egg of the chicken, honestly. I think... <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I, actually, finding a cause that I believed in, which in this case was helping dogs get adopted, for example, let's simplify the, the, the conversation, finding that um, it helped me bring my barriers down when it came to creativity and doing the work. If I'm sitting at home and I'm like, oh, I should really take photos, or I should take photos of dogs, or I should create a new series, it's not enough of a driving force for me. I still am in that the fog funk stasis that you guys described in one of your episodes like i i'm still in that phase i haven't outgrown it yet it's the bane of my existence but if i'm like hey there's a dog that needs me there's a shelter that needs good photos like it's actually it's it's the kick in the butt i need to get the work done right i did not have a studio i'm like how am i going to take photos well i could set up at the shelter so i set up a studio at the shelter and so i never had a studio and i was able to create groundbreaking award-winning exhibited in museum work without having a studio. And so I think working with what you have and finding creative ways of, of kicking yourself in the butt and getting the work done. So for me, finding partners like shelters, that's amazing because as soon as somebody relies on you, needs you, then 
it's not longer about just you and your work and, oh, am I going to make money with this? It's just about, hey, I need to get this done. Yeah, it's having that accountability to someone, isn't it? Or something. Whereas, yeah, it's so easy if you're a creative. I feel like it's something that creatives really suffer with is if I don't have to do anything, then I might just sit around all day and not really do anything. But as soon as well, someone like needs... Yeah, I feel like that's like so many creatives. Only people listen to the show yeah. will definitely resonate with that. Whereas yeah. as soon as you're like, well, I need to do this because I've got someone expecting it. Then oh, it's like, line. well, you've made a promise oh, yeah. to an audience. So we've spoken to people before who do like daily paintings. And just by having an audience who, if I, if I didn't do it, then it's like, oh shit, I'm going to let everyone else down. It kind of, have just creating something like that gives you the fuel to keep going and also obviously having a cause behind it as well because you know that actually if I do just sit and maze around today then some dogs might not get rehomed and it kind of almost puts that like well well I kind of need to do this because it's it's part of me yeah back then also there was not a lot of photographers doing what I do and so a lot of shelters had horrible photos and in the US Mm. the numbers are insane they have millions of dogs and cats sitting in shelters it's not like in Europe uh, and it was just like, wow, the photos that they would put out. And I'm like, this is the last chance for that dog. And that's the photo you're going to use. Mm. The dog looks terrified mm. and sick and dirty. So I wanted to create sexy, beautiful, glamorous headshots and, and be like, okay, this is your new best friend. Come and get him at the shelter, you know? So there was that. I also heard that a lot of artists, I think Picasso is one of them, would create artificial deadlines for themselves. Like I have to finish this by the end of the day or the end of the week. And yeah. I feel like that's a good driving force for me. Unfortunately, because I'm in the margins, I'm not like an artist that necessarily has gallery shows or I, I don't really have deadlines. And also I work on my own all the time. I don't really have collaborators or partners or um, it's not been my experience. I think because I was protecting myself a lot, I'm, I'm ready to open up now, but before the pandemic and before therapy, I should say, um, it was very hard for me to <laughs> let other people in. Um, I did therapy right before the pandemic and then the pandemic just kind of solidified everything. And I feel like I'm such a different person now, uh, but it was very, very difficult for me. And so when you're the only driving force of your entire career, and your creative process like it's it's so difficult and you guys talked about something that really resonated with me about basically the way I received it was how if you keep challenging yourself with something that's a little just too hard or too outside your comfort zone you kind of create like a, a, a neural pathway of small failures like everything becomes so difficult and for me, I'm a photographer, but I'm also a multidisciplinary artist. And I do sculptures and embroideries and paintings and poetry. I do a bunch of different things. And each time I'm like, hey, what if I made like a life-size sculpture of a dog? And I've never done it before, but I'm just going to sit, you know, in the corner of the room and try it. And then it's a disaster. Or it, it, it never gets as good as I have it in my mind. And then I'm just deflated. And I think I spend my whole life like this, just mini disappointment with my creative process. And mm. I feel it's actually like really messed with me so since i listened to that episode with you like i became really aware of that and how do i how do i create a new neurological path of mini rewards mini successes and kind of rebuild that for myself because i have so many ideas i want to put in the world but i'm always like you know paralyzes paralysis of life yeah because i've I've heard you talk about before how when you first started sculpture that kind of like because obviously your photos are good you're at the level where that's up here and then suddenly you start sculpture and it's like you're not there you're starting right down here you're starting from like zero again 
And I suppose it's the same as anyone starting anything new. It's always like there's that taste gap of like, well, I can see what I like. That is a great yeah. one. I've not quite got the skills to get there yet. And I think, yeah, it is that hard process of just accepting that it's going to take you a good period of time to get to where you're good enough and realizing that by putting in a small bit of effort consistently over a long period of time, you will get there. And you know you can get there because you've already got there with the first thing that you've done. Like You've got good at photography, so it means that you can get good at something else. You have the ability to learn that. And I think just telling yourself that constantly of like, I've done it once, so I can do it again. And as soon as you do it twice, then it makes the third time easier and the fourth time easier until it gets to a stage where you'll have that convict like now like so i um get very obsessed about certain things i'm like come on, i'm going to master that cool satisfied with that now cool what can i master now and you go on so many times now i'm like anything that i set my mind to i know that it, i'm going to be amazing at it it's just going to take me a lot of work and kind of learning and stuff to get there yeah i also feel like for for me so my grandmother used to call me the artist of the first draft because i would do something once and then it would be like oh my god i love this piece and I never reproduced. I never built on that. Um, and I thought it was a, such a, like a weird thing to say. And I, I often think about what she meant or like what, what it means about my, my art. What I've noticed is, for example, the sculpture, you know, a few years ago, I was like, oh, what if I did a sculpture? I've never done it before. And I did a little one. And then I didn't really, I did a couple. I did maybe like five little ones. And then three years ago, I did a, my first really big one for an exhibit. And it was fugly i mean it was like the worst thing you've <laughs> ever seen but i was so proud of myself because it was really big and i had no idea what i was doing and it kind of like held together <laughs> and uh this week uh, i started working on a new one and already i can see even though between the sculptures i haven't done any sculpture it's already like a million years apart and so yeah. i think when i used to sing opera you know so my teacher would say sometimes the best thing you can do is not sing for a couple of months because when you come back, it's like your body has processed some of the movements, some of the breathing and everything um, while you were sleeping, you know, while you were not doing anything. Yeah. And mm. I would come back sometimes after six months of not singing and my voice was in a very different space. And yeah, I think sometimes you don't necessarily need to work on something every day to, to get better. Sometimes yeah. all you need is your test level as like a a horizon point like okay this is where i'm going and then just kind of let your body process it yeah because it's interesting that the neuroscience behind that is like when you're physically doing something your brain isn't building stuff you almost kind of like store it in one part of your brain and it's through sleep that then that gets kind of like cemented in so you kind of like learn during the day that gets held in one place and at night that's where your brain actually starts to learn it and i think that's exactly what you're talking about there whereas over time you've ran through it so many times in your head subconsciously that like you've done it again and again and again and I find like mm. even just like dreaming sometimes I'll be like fucking hell I've just had a whole night of having photo shoots in my head and but it's and then I'll be like well I just know it better now and I'll sometimes have an idea and I'm like let me just stew on that for a bit and it's like two or three days later I'm like that's how I'm going to do it and it's just like having that little break is where you kind of like the creativity sometimes comes into it and I always feel like it's quite often if I go on holiday and I'm, especially I feel like sunbathing is something that I do very little. Um, but whenever I do, I always have great ideas because it's probably one of a few times that I'm kind of phone off, just kind of like sat there in peace and your brain's just kind of constantly working. And it's like, oh, it finally gets time to kind of process what it's needed to process. 
Yeah, sitting on subways or train was that for me. I used to take a lot of trains because my husband and I were long distance for years in Switzerland. So I would have like a three, four hour train ride to go see him. And I, I so I sat many, many hours and uh, subway in New York, like, and I would just get floated with desires and ideas. And like, it, it gets so exciting. Uh, you also talk about something else about that window of opportunity to act on the impulse that mm. is sometimes so mm. short. You, I think in an episode you said like it's a 15 minute a day. So if you miss today, you're going to have to wait 24 hours for the next one. For me, I feel like it's once every six months. <laughs> and <laughs> I always feel like, oh, there's so much I want to be making, but it's never the right time to write everything. And so I, I have a studio now uh, that we moved in a bigger place and it's full of my stuff. And I look at it, you know, from the window because it's like a detached garage. And I'm like, oh. I should be working in the studio, but I have emails to answer today. I find it very, very difficult to act on the impulse. And it's so frustrating to me. Like it's really, it almost leads to depression. And, you know, like it's really something that's been eating at me for a very long time. Um, and so I'm trying to crack that equation of how do you act on the impulse? Yeah. I mean, we've spoken to experts on the show before. I, I remember speaking to Cal Newport and he was talking about he, he's trying to live in a world without email. Um, but I mean, if you if yeah. you just outsourced, you were talking about you're kind of open to bringing on an assistant or something. All of those emails can be answered by an assistant and then you can focus can on the know? thing that... <laughs> yes, uh, they can. Of course they can. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. They, they definitely absolutely yeah. they can. Yeah, the problem with me is I, I yeah, I have such a full spectrum. Like somebody recently told told me, like the problem on your social media, I bet you have so many different audiences that are looking at your work that it must be really difficult when you post something like a little different. And it's true. Like I have the, you know, animal activists and I have photographers, I have like mm. artists, like I have like such a big spectrum. And my emails reflect that. My emails are like a schizophrenic, like it's multiple personality. And so it's just a lot, but yeah, what I'm doing is every year I shut down, um, around this week actually, and for at least a month and I, I'm going to put an out of office reply and I'm actually so excited. I have all these sculpture and project that I want to work on. And that's my time to kind of try and be a little email free. I actually feel like putting an out of office reply that says, unless you're offering me a lot of money or a really exciting project. I won't get back to you until, you know, next year sometime. If you have a kind of a, a form on your website that people write in, you just write mm. what's your budget between 0 and 10,000, 10,000, 20,000. Yeah. And basically anyone between <laughs> 0 and 10 or whatever your kind of lower bracket yeah. is goes to one email address and anything that's a higher one goes to another email address. And you just only look at the higher one because until you've got more time to go and do it. And I think right. talk, like setting in time to be creative, I think is really important. So for example, next year, I've every Friday, I've made sure I've never got a shoot booked in because then that allows me to do creative shoots or kind of do some art or something that's different that I'm always going to have on that day. Because I feel like unless you book that time in advance, it will just never happen. And yeah. you'll just think like, oh, I've just got to do this. I've just got to do this. I've just got to get these emails sent. Whereas if you say on one well, Fridays, and it, you can even have it an out in office that comes up every Friday as an example that says, I don't answer emails on Friday. If you want me, you can expect a response on Monday. Like right. you're not going to lose all of your clients by kind of cutting yeah. down to that thing. But, and it's like just that simple little change can mean that you are being creative when you want to be creative. Yeah. And I think for me, I have so little outside clients anyway, because I don't do pet photography. I don't take clients. Yeah. And uh, I very rarely take on commercial stuff. So it's, 
it's really just like my own schedule and my own stuff. So I have like a little web store where I sell, you know, my books and pins and T-shirts and like stuff that I design, like just for fun. Um, and I'm like, you know, I could just shut that down for six months. I don't know that it would make a huge difference. I mean, to my wallet a little bit, but money is not a driving force again for me. Like it's part of it, of mm -hmm. course, because we all have bills to pay. But yeah, I'm, anyway, I'm just trying to reframe a little bit my relationship with yeah. creativity. And even with the store idea, I was actually having a conversation with someone earlier about this, how they were like, the person they've currently got working for them, as soon as an order comes in, they're super efficient and get straight out. Whereas he's like, it doesn't have to be like that. We're not Amazon. Right. It can, if you just say to your clients, like, we deliver, we have two drops a month, like one on this date, one on this date. And if that's just clear on the website, whenever someone goes to order, they know that they're going to have to wait for it. If I order a sofa, that's going to be a six month wait time potentially. But I know that in advance, so I'm prepared to do it. And I think as long as people have that idea of I don't need it tomorrow and they're prepared to wait for it, then again, that kind of makes it easier for our side as creators to be like, okay, well, yeah. these are the days I answer emails. These are the days things are sent out. And as long as that's kind of clearly said to your audience, then I think that makes things a lot easier for you. Yeah, I think having those rules is, is the key, but um, holding those rules is what's difficult, you know, because there's always like an email that's like, hey, we need a quote by this Friday, you know, and it's always yesterday and you know, it's just a lot of balls to juggle. But yeah, I like that. And sometimes I I will do it. Um, I saw an artist that does a drop every Monday, I think, is when she ships the stuff. And yeah. I thought that was genius. Yeah, because again, it's true. And, and I think people more and more understand the value of small businesses. And they understand that there's Amazon and there's small businesses. And those live in two different worlds. And um, sometimes they just buy the stuff to support. They don't actually care that much about yeah, the object yeah, yeah. itself everybody's like yeah i have a million t-shirts why do i need a sophie gamon t-shirt but they just know like they want to have the message they want to help spread the word they want to own something that i created so um i think it speaks to the pricing that's why we can price a little more expensive and than amazon which is not hard because amazon is very cheap um but also yeah to to your point i think we have to create our own rules and and I think people are very flexible. I think the good thing about you that I've noticed, there are many good things about you, Sophie, but one of the things <laughs> that I've really noticed is like, you don't seem afraid to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, I mean, in researching you, like realizing that you, you completely upped and left France and moved to New York and you lived there for the last 10 years and where you were talking about like diving into starting sculpture because just because it was something that you wanted to do and and you're frustrated that what you see in your head is not what you're actually realizing but you're still willing to to push out of that kind of comfort zone because really you could just be doing pit bulls with flower crowns on for the rest of your life like i'm yeah. sure there would be a viable market for you to never do anything but that but you're you're not afraid to like try new things which i think that's that's the key yeah, I don't know if it's fear. Honestly, I think the motivation is just like a, a creative restlessness. Um, I just, I suffocate. And Pitbull Flower Power, I've been doing it for seven years. I've done about 450 portraits in the series. And these are all shelter dogs. So I travel across the country and I go to shelters and I crown the dogs, you know, when I can. And they actually wear the crowns. So I've made hundreds of flower crowns. Uh, it's just such a big machine. Uh, I did take a break. And during the pandemic, I could not go to shelters. Uh, they were on, you know, shut down. I mean, to uh, volunteers. So that allowed mm -hmm. me to take a break because it's like the hamster wheel. It's just a lot of the same, but yeah, I could 
definitely. And I, I used to meet with licensing agencies that would be like, you're sitting on a gold mine, but we need you to put flower crowds on poodles and Frenchies and pugs. And I'm like, you guys really don't understand me. Bye. So I actually never, again, commercial is never what drove me, but I make a killing. I make a really good living with uh, different streams of revenues. And I'm actually really proud of the career that I've built. It's kind of a miracle too. I'm like, I don't know how this happens, but here we are. Uh, And I don't think you need to compromise if commercial is not, if you don't see your work as having like a commercial drive, um, I think it's okay. And I think you'll find your way. Just don't be afraid to, yeah, push the boundary. So I remember when Flower Power came out the first time and I thought I was going to do like five images and then move on with my life. It was never intended to be a big project, but it went viral like cray, 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 cray. And everybody was asking me to t- take photos of their pit bulls with flower crowns. And I was like, oh, I guess I'll do another shoot. And then just snowball. <laughs> um, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I just lost the point I was going to make. I was just talking about, it was a good point. Oh, yes. So when the first images of flower power came out and people were like, oh, I love this. Oh, I hate you. People are monsters. How dare you? I had a lot of hate, a lot of love. I was caught into the drama. And then people would interview me and say like, so are people dangerous? And I'm like, I have no idea, dude. I'm just like literally took a photo of a couple of dogs. Um, Now, of course, I'm more prepared. I understand the subject way more. But back then it was just, I'm an artist who put flower crowns on pit bulls, okay? I'm not like the savior of the world of pit bulls. Um, But the first thing that people asked was, oh, do you have a wall calendar? And I'm like, who uses wall calendars anymore? Like this is, it was 2014 at that point. (laughs) And I figured, you know, let me figure out how to make a wall calendar. But I certainly don't want to spend the rest of the year like folding envelopes and, and going to the post office. So I figured a print-on-demand service. Oh, you know, it's really expensive. I guess I'll just mark up and, and sell an expensive calendar, and that's what it's going to be. And now it's my, I guess, sixth year doing it, and it's actually a really good revenue stream for me, and I do it every year, and the people love it. Calendars are also awesome because you stay on people's mind for an entire year. I mean, it's like yeah. advertisement that they paid for, you know, <laughs> on their wall, and it's a beautiful product. I'm really proud of it, and... um it celebrates the work in a way that's fun. Back then, you know, I was exhibiting in galleries a little bit. I tried a more fine art route. And I remember galleries being like, ooh, you shouldn't put your photos on products because that's just going to like maybe, you know, you have to stay in your lane a little bit. And oh. I did not listen to that advice because I was like, this is so old school and I'm just going to mm. do whatever I, I feel like doing. I'm so yeah. glad I did because that particular gallery stole all my prints, all my money, and I have no idea where my prints went and they kept selling them and I never saw a cent. So they weren't assholes anymore. anyway. But I made a lot of money at the beginning selling my photos on tote bags and calendars. And I have no shame in that. I think, I think it's great that we live in a, yeah. in a time and a world where artists are the masters of their own ship. And we don't have to rely on a big guy behind a desk telling you, oh, you're not good enough. Oh, I don't like your art. Oh, are you really an artist? You know, and like setting these arbitrary, stupid rules. Nowadays, if you want to design a paint, a t-shirt or whatever, if you want to paint a mural, if you want to just do it. And mind you, printing my photos on tote bags and all that stuff has not prevented me from having two museum exhibits this year. I'm in Fotografiska right now in Sweden, which is the best photo museum in the world thank you so much i never thought it would happen but it was kind of a secret dream of mine 
And now I'm like, eh, here I am with my tote bags and my wall calendars. And I'm also in Fotografiska, you know, <laughs> among actually exhibiting next to William Wegman and names that I, <laughs> Team Flash, and like names that I adore and respect so much. And so that's so mad how like full circle it's gone. But yeah. I, I I think on the on the note of the commercialization, it's like Keith Haring was the master of of that of of like when he did his pop up shops and everything like that. And it's like he I I feel like he made such strides in people realizing like no, this is down to the audience and you like and and so with the internet now, there's it's like you don't get to tell us what is art. The audience will decide and. So very often they will want to buy an original painting for thousands of pounds or a print of a photo that they can store in their house, but they'll also want to get a tote bag. And that's down to the consumer to to buy. You mentioned your your kind of um, multiple revenue streams. Would you mind like letting us know like what those streams are? Because um, yeah. I think that would be re- interesting for people. You know, it's weird because I feel like every year is a little different. I've always gone mm. with the flow and um, I've always, for me, it's part of the creative process actually like designing products uh, or testing mm. something new or exhibiting or like, so that's why I like to say, to try and say yes to a lot of different things and not limit myself to what I, I think I should be doing. Um, <clears throat> so every year is different. I would say that print on demand stuff, because again, I'm not about to have a stock. Also, I lived in a one bedroom apartment for 10 years. You know, <laughs> there was, I had no space for nothing. Boxes and boxes. Yeah. yeah boxes. Oh, packaging material, man. It's like, oh, Every artist I talk to is like, what is with the packaging material? It just takes so much space. It's such a nightmare. Uh, during the pandemic, I decided to amp up the volume on my web store. So I, I offered way more product and prints and like I tried to shake things up. I actually, I think more than tripled my revenue that year, the first pandemic wow. year. But my husband and I were working and living in the same room and I was taping packages all the time. So sometimes <laughs> it'd be like uh, the tape roll, like, like, you know, that big tape is like, could you maybe do that later? I'm in a meeting and I'm like, okay, so we'd have to time, you know, when I would be packaging orders and when he would be working. That was so funny. But yeah, I, I made a, a lot of money the first year of pandemic because I was like, let's just, I had a bunch of prints, you know, that were sitting in the apartment test prints and there were new images that I wanted to print on like metallic paper or whatever. And I made them like limited edition. And then I really like just ship a bunch of stuff, created like greeting cards and postcards and, and just like had fun with it. Cause I was confined in a one bedroom apartment in New York. What else was I going to do? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I really made a killing. So that year was probably my biggest was probably my web store. Uh, so I do print on demand on Redbubble. So I do like tote bags, pillows, stuff like that. I just yeah. started with Printful because I'm on Squarespace. Printful integrates with, with Squarespace, which I really love. Uh, and that's for t-shirts and hoodies, uh, things like that. Uh, I just started a month ago, I think, because everybody has been asking me for t-shirt for like seven years. I just yeah, started. Yeah. And I still, I mean, I'm at the beginning, but um Problem with print on demand is like you really have to price things really expensive to have decent margins. Yes. And so I'm not a huge fan of that. I wish at this point of my career, I wish I could move away from print on demand and have actually stock so I could be more, um, have better margins and just more in control of everything, the packaging and all that. But I'm okay with things the way they are. So print on demand is a big thing. My calendar is a big thing. Uh, I do sell limited edition large prints to collectors, uh, but because I don't yeah. exhibit in galleries or anywhere, that's kind of a smaller part of what I do. But, you know, they sell for 
2,800, I think, probably the, the, the smaller one up to 15,000, which <laughs> I sold once that for, uh, at, an, at a gallery show. That was really good. It covered for all the expenses. But uh, so usually it's around like between three or around 3,000 to 5,000 would be for one sale. Um, and so I sell a handful of those maybe during the year. It's not like the big thing. I also never yeah. advertise them. I realized also early pandemic, I was like, what is the biggest margin I have? Like the, the, the product that gives me the most income. And those were prints. Uh, and I realized I have never advertised my prints on my Instagram. I was like, wow. okay, maybe like there's something here that I'm not doing. Cause again, I'm not like a commercial mindset. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, I mean, being in a commercial mindset is kind of a creative process. It reminds me of being a kid and playing merchant with your siblings, you know? So it's kind of, I like the idea of, Ooh, I'm making a product, I'm packaging it and I'm making money of it. It's kind of a creative process, but I don't really care that it's bring money. Like it's, it's not a monitoring thing for me. It's, I, I don't know how to explain it, but so, yeah, I realize. I have never promoted my prints. And so I did that a little bit. And I think that helped my income, that boosted my income because a lot of people bought prints. Yeah. Um, I have my book also. You know, I did a Kickstarter in 2018 to do my Pitbull Flower Power coffee table book because no publishers wanted to touch that. And I was like, that's weird because, you know, the posts get like millions of views on Facebook. Yeah, You'd think yeah. a publisher would see potential. That's insane. No, they were like, pitbulls, rescues, like, mm, I don't, we don't feel like nobody's going to care. Also, I wanted to make a big coffee table book and the couple that were interested would have probably wanted to do a small one. And I was like, uh, no, yeah. I want big pages. I want a heavy, thick, like sexy book. So I ended That's up doing kind of a good then that, that you managed to do it yourself and, and get the product that you really wanted. Yeah. So I was super lucky too to find a publisher who specializes in like animal rights. They're like a vegan publisher. And so they love projects like this. They love the projects. So they say, we'll help you. You raise the money, you pay for everything. We'll just take a small percentage to help like run the machine. But they figured out, you know, the printer for me and like warehousing and all the boring logistics and which allowed oh, yeah. me to really, they even like hooked me up with a designer that had made books with them before. So they really helped with the structure of it all. And then I just wrote the stories and I did the layout, which took me back to my magazines day. And I love doing that. I love editing and like doing a layout. It's my, one of my favorite thing to do. And, um, and then I did a Kickstarter and it was so scary because a book like this was a lot of money. And I was like, I don't know if people are going to like the book was $75, you know, like it's not a small investment yeah. and I needed to raise at least 55,000 to pay for all the costs and make a little bit of money. Um, and I think that was reached in like 24 hours. And then I, wow. I, it kept going up and up. So I actually stopped promoting it. I think I, I promoted it like just a handful of times on my social yeah. media. Cause I was, I almost felt bad that it was going so well. <laughs> and I think in the end I raised like $170,000 in some. Wow. That's and brilliant. it was, yeah, it was amazing. And then since then the book has also generated revenue because I sell a f like a, quite a bit during the year as well and and because the book is already paid off that's just like free money that's coming every year yeah. and um so the book has actually been a surprisingly good investment uh but a lot of people reach out to me to ask me like how did you do it and i tell them i have been at it for four years the series had a huge fan base people were very yeah. vested in the project and had been waiting for the book so and and it took me almost a year to prepare for the kickstarter i did a lot of research you know, like, so it was a lot, um, 
I think there are I think there are certain I think there are certain products that people are are willing to spend that sort of premium amount for. And I think what you've done so beautifully that that I think is the real sort of big takeaway for our listeners is is that like you at the core of everything you do is is voice like you mentioned it's it's like the the difference that you want to make and that drives everything forward but then working out like what can i produce that is going to bring people joy that's going to bring people into this world it's going to spread the awareness of what i'm trying to change but it's also going to pay for the roof over my head so that i can make more cool shit for you and you you seem to have like cracks that that code because it's it's a really hard thing to to balance the both of like doing something good in the world making an impact but also commercially being savvy enough to set yourself up with like you said multiple revenue streams that are going to allow you to keep doing more keep making more cool shit yeah i think uh, you know sometimes i shoot myself in the foot too i used to be really really uh like anal about it like i remember being hired by the clothing brand free people to shoot an ad for the anniversary copy of Vogue magazine US. I mean, like a huge deal. And I'm like, okay, I want to rescue Pitbull in the shot. You know, like I had like such demand. I'm like, I want to work with rescues. I don't want any purebred like breeder bullshit. Give me rescue. So each time I worked with a partner like this, I actually made it part of a conversation. How like Mm -hmm. I want this to align just because I'm being paid for it doesn't mean I don't want it to align with my purpose. And um, sometimes, I don't know, like there was a big brand that reached out to me and they basically said, we have unlimited budget. We love your work. We want to hire you for like a bunch of projects. It's going to be awesome. And I said, why is your logo a Frenchie? And I actually brought the whole conversation about if you care about dogs and your dog brand and you're trying to shake the market, do your research and don't use a Frenchie as a symbol of what you represent. Because you say you're about healthy dog. Anyway, and then after the meeting, I told my husband, like, damn, I think I shot myself in the foot. (laughs) But I also think, like, sometimes that's why people will hire me. Um, Like, Apple hired me last summer to do a video with them. And same thing. I said, okay, I'll do it, but only if, first, I want more money. And second, I also want it to be at a shelter. And I want there to be an angle about shelter dogs and adoption and and all that and i do that with every even if it's apple i don't care i do it with everybody and maybe sometimes i lose gigs but i feel it is so important to align if that's a driving force for you if the purpose the mission the message is important to your art just don't be afraid to make it about that and if people don't want to hire you for that then maybe you dodge the bullet like it's that authenticity which i think is what makes people keep wanting to be a part of your ecosystem mm. i think it's the reason that you can have a kickstart that sells so well and people are prepared to pay 75 dollars for a book is because they know that that is going towards something that's going to bring actual value you're not just like greenwashing and saying like oh yeah this is a really good book i'm going to go and do these nice things every mm. single thing that you do is evident of what you say and believe and i think it's that authenticity that is so repetitive that people can trust you basically build up so much trust with that audience just through your actions. In the Kickstarter, I'm just going to drop this little hint, um, uh, this little tip for your listeners too. If you prepare a Kickstarter, make sure you have room for people who want to throw money at you. Meaning, mm. don't just price. So let's say my book is 75 and I have like, okay, you can back 75 and get the book. I also had a, a level that was, give me 250 and you get a book. But you also help my career. You help me like grow. And I had almost 40 people, I think, that bought that thing. So literally just buying the book and then giving me free money just because they love me. So I think as creative, 
especially if you have a message or, or a mission or something you really believe in, make room for these people in your life, like in, in yeah. the offers you give. I have a PayPal donation button on my, on my website. Um, I also have a Patreon, which is another stream of revenue. I don't want to advertise it too much because I feel a little uncomfortable because I'm not a Patreon that gives like stuff every month. I actually mm. just say, if you love what I do, you can give me money on Patreon and that's going to help me like not worry too much every month of like, ooh, how am I going to pay my bills? Um, and it's a little mattress. like, And it feels good to know that there are people that are just like believe in me so much. It also creates an audience that I know, okay, next time I have something coming out, these people are more likely to support it. So yeah. I think it's not, again, just about the money. The money is the symbol of the transaction, but it's more of a, this is how much we love you. That's so true. I think I think so many creatives come from having no pennies and are scraping and crawling themselves that they find it very hard to believe that there's anyone else on the planet that's actually got money. And right. so we always because we because we look at something and for example, so when so when I when me and Adam were first starting out, we would look at a book and say $75 for a book. There's no way on the planet that we could afford that. So we would never be able, we would then think, oh, if we're bringing out a book, well, we can't charge it at $75 because we can't afford that. Forgetting that there are millions and billions of people who can afford that. So I think, yeah, when it comes to pricing for creatives, it's like, don't, everyone is not like you. There are actually people that have made some money that that are willing to spend it on things that they find beautiful. And you know, in the US, it's it, there's a, such a culture of people with money supporting the arts and supporting causes they believe in. Uh, I don't know mm. if in Europe we really have the same. Not in France, certainly not. Nobody has money, but in the US, <laughs> I was shocked. Like I have people who have sent me checks just saying, like, I love what you do so much, and they're just sitting, you know, in in million dollar houses, and they have all the money in the world, and they, for them, it's nothing. It's again a currency of this is how much I support your work. This is how much I believe in what you do. Please never stop. Uh, and I mean, I'll stop if I want to, of course. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> not, um, but I think, yeah, just make room for that. And sometimes I feel bad because people say, wow, I love your work so much, but I really can't afford, you know, what your book or your calendar even, which is $30. Mm-hmm. And I feel so shitty about it. Um, sometimes I've, I've, sent one to someone like as a gift or, or, you know, I, that's why I I make postcards. That's why I make things that I try to cover a price range from $10 to thousands and thousands of dollars, because I know that's how big the the range is out there. Um, so yeah, just be creative about, yeah. Imagine if, if a celebrity, (laughs) that's another fun story. Once, um, I had this designer, interior designer reach out to me and say, oh, you know, my client would love to hire you for flower portraits of their dogs. And I was like, ugh. And I lived in New York and they were in LA. And I was like, I don't want to fly to LA and I don't want to like photograph random dogs with flower crowns. Leave me alone. I don't care. And so I put a really high price thinking like, ugh, nobody's ever going to want to pay for this. Like, that's ridiculous. Nobody would spend that kind of money. And then the guy said, come back and said, oh, uh, the client said yes. And I was like, fuck. Like, I'm so mad at me. Like, oh, now I'm going to have to do it. I don't have any excuses. And then they said, oh, and just so you know, the client is uh, John Legend and Chrissy Teigen. And I was like, oh. (sighs) And, uh, you know, that was just kind of a fun. I'm also terrible with celebrities. I always give them the runaround because I'm like, who are you? And then I realized months later, oh, fuck, that was Sia that wanted to buy a print. Like, I'm just (laughs) terrible, 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 terrible. Um, But it was like one of those, yeah, it's just... 
I don't know. I feel like if you start thinking of money as this, I'm not a gambler at all. I'm not saying play with money, but like muse with how much could I ask for this and see what sticks because you have nothing to lose. Worst case scenario, the person said, wow, you're way, 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 way out of budget. They might not be a good fit for you anyway. Or you might be able to say, well, where could you meet me? What's your budget? And then you have a conversation. You might land to a place where you both feel comfortable. Um, I know I don't, you know, answer an email for less than a certain amount. Or I don't, you know, I, I would never get a, accept a job for less than a certain amount. And as photographers, I mean, you know how it's like. Um, people think they can get a lot for very little money and, and it's a constant battle. Um, but just like think of it as a, another creative game. How much money could I ask for this and see what happens? Sophie, thank you so much for coming on our show. Could you let everyone know where they can find you online? Um, everybody can find me on my website, sophiegamant.com. For the spelling, I guess you, you'll have my name in the notes. My name is French, so very hard to spell in English. Um, and I'm on social media, uh, Instagram and Facebook are my two big things, Sophie Gamant. And on uh, Patreon, it's also Sophie Gamant. Everything is the same. Make it easy for everyone. Uh, and yeah, you can just check the work. I have a new series coming out, hopefully in the spring. I've been working with uh, rescues from the dog meat trade in South Korea. So it's a new series that's coming out soon in a few months, hopefully, if COVID gets its shit together and let us go back to our <laughs> lives. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Okay. Thank you so Incredible. much. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. Oh, thank you both. It's been such a treat. Thank you. Thank you.